All right. Good morning, people of planet Earth. It is Saturday, October 10th, at a super late 7.40 in the morning. The sun is actually up, and I'm actually walking in the daytime. What a weird experience. There's no stars to guide me. There's no crickets to listen to. And there's actually people out on the street. So, I want to uh, say thanks again to Mr. Chris from the Abs in the Six Pack podcast. <clears throat> we recorded a d- the day before yesterday. And I hope you guys enjoy that episode. Today is going to be more random thoughts from me on my walk with no editing. And just a reminder, season three is for episodes that are edited. These in season one are not edited. They're just random. And maybe one day we'll refine them. But I reset up my studio. So I hope that we're going to be able to do more in the future. Now, yesterday we ended with a clip with Mr. Joe Jack Spirico, who was talking about reprogramming your mind. And my dad called me. He said, what What is he talking about? Can you give me an example? So, and yes, I can give you an example. Um, and it's all about becoming aware of your reactions to uh, stimulus and being able to intercept and reprogram them. And that's kind of what the idea of introspector is all about. Mindfulness meditation is about achieving a calm and observing the things that arise in your mind without reacting to them. So that's a reprogramming. See, the thing that Jack didn't say is that the compassionate meditation the compassionate meditation is probably the best one for reprogramming where whenever someone says something whenever you hear a thought that upsets you or any thought at all you react with compassion for the uh, the world and not hate and <clears throat> let's just say sympathy the poor little deer poor little deer doesn't know what to do his mom ran away and it's just a little baby deer teenager and he's pretending that I can't see him but it's smart enough not to bolt in the wrong direction. It just stood and waited till I passed it so it could run to its parents. <clears throat> so
So let's say that someone would call you a name, right? Um, and that would always trigger you. So let's say they called you doo-doo head and that would make you feel bad, get you riled. Well, the reprogramming idea would be that you would, instead of reacting to it, you would take a step back and you would say, I see that I'm being upset by them calling me doo-doo head. And then you could apply some kind of, well, either let it go and let the thought sink back, or you could apply some kind of compassion where you would actually try and feel some kind of connection or love to the person calling you due to head. And, you know, and that's really tough. Kind of like the, um, <clears throat> the Jesus type thing, you know, or Buddha type thing, like, oh, we're all sentient beings on this planet, suffering all together. Some kind of unity type idea would work. But it doesn't matter what it is, because you're flipping the script. And if you can change it from a negative emotion to a positive thing, or at least to have some sympathy for them calling you that, like you don't know where they, what they've been through, and you don't know how many times they were beaten as a child and why they're calling you that, etc., 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 blah, blah, blah. And then, um, but you shouldn't go too much into those thoughts, but it's more like just a simple flipping of the emotion to more of compassion, uh, empathy. Um, <clears throat> and that's a, that's effective reprogramming because you're changing how your mind is wired, how it's, re how you're reacting. And by changing your reactions, you're also changing your program. Just like when you click on things for Google, you're training Google that that's the right answer, right? When you click on ads for Google, then you're really training them. That's the right answer. So, because Google doesn't really know what it's showing you, it doesn't really understand the content. And just imagine that your brain doesn't really understand the content. I mean, imagine that. That would be pretty crazy. I mean, that's something I just realized. What if your brain is like Google and it doesn't really understand the content of... Um, what it sees, all these forms, all these things that we're actually blind to what they are. We don't understand them. We can build models of them. We can build models of the models. But how deep does our understanding actually go? Well, let me put it this way. The Google understanding is very, very superficial. And for a lot of our primitive brain functions, let's say neural networks, they're really based on training. So if you change the way you react, 
let's just say that the sympathetic system might learn something new, right? So, <clears throat> and now go and listen to some political news or turn on like CNN or Fox and just watch your own reactions. And instead of blurting out and start screaming at the television, observe yourself trying to do that and stop it. And reflect on why you're doing that. Um, and, um, you know, this really requires a certain detachment and a certain state of mind to get into. Which is why meditation is about quieting the mind and observing it and not indulging it and also to become aware of what's going on and trying not to think but just to gather your awareness now we talked about the awareness as being possibly a detached item that your soul maybe lives, or your consciousness might live detached from the brain. And how the mind might just be the horse that the consciousness rides on. Through a connection that is faster than the speed of light, quantum entanglement, We don't really know what that is, but let's just say something fancy. So then the question will become, if development of awareness is really improving the connection strength, not necessarily indulging the horse. So think about that. It's not indulging the horse. It is um, building a better bond with a horse. Let's put it that way. And, you know, um, it might very well be that the Consciousness is just a different part of the brain or a simulation created inside of the brain that's connected to other parts. And in that case, you would just be increasing the strength of those connections in the brain, building out more of a wider neural network with more nodes attached to it. And the reason why you have to practice meditation or contemplation like that is because it requires time to actually build those networks. You can't just wish them into existence. The neurons have to move into place. The connections have to be made and they have to be trained. And all of that requires food and energy. They say you get one a couple of neuron, new neurons a day 
And if you don't put them to work, they die. So use it or lose it. Yeah. All right. I don't know if I explained anything well or not. Um, <clears throat> but um, now we're going to go on to some boring stuff. So I'm going to do about 10 minutes of boring uh, computer crap and math. But I'll put a pause here so we have a segment. Okay, so now we're going to talk a little bit about the introspector for about 10 minutes, I think. And um, I had some pretty good thoughts this morning, and I just wanted to share them with myself and the zero people who are interested in it. Sorry to fill up space on this podcast, but, you know, it's like a public service announcement or like an advertising, I guess. If you're talking about yourself, it's a form of advertising. <clears throat> so where we left off is we have a, a graph of data that we've read in from the compiler that represents a program. And it doesn't really matter what representation that graph is in because <clears throat> we can create an interface to it to apply normal graph algorithms. Like you want to extract edges. You want to extract nodes. And then iterate over edges and nodes. And, and I'm sure that there's some graph algorithms or libraries in Haskell that I could adapt my data structure to so that it'll have the same interface. So that's the first observation that we have a graph. And then we have functions that bring you from one node to another. So it's a graph of objects connected by functions. So you've got all types of stuff going on. Um, but in the end, in the end, you have the uh, actual, I'm getting distracted here, people. <clears throat> So each of these different fields, these different types of fields in the system are basically different functions. And <clears throat> they represent edges in the graph, but they're a different type of edge. Got all different types of edges, not just a normal edge. You could also say you have multiple graphs, right? So instead of having individual uh, functions, you have a lot of graphs that overlay the same set of objects. 
so it's a really complicated type of structure. Um, <clears throat> and what I found now is I, I've gotten the first algorithm, which is n squared, where after we've read in all the um, Okay, I'm going that way. But you go first. Oh, okay. He's a good doggy. Hey, doggy. <sighs> Cute dog. Now, so what I'm trying to say here. is we've gotten it down to a either reading through the nodes one by one or reflecting over <clears throat> loading the nodes into a dictionary so we have all of them and then having a function that takes that dictionary and a node so I think that's kind of like n squared like it's it's for every node compared to every other node and um, <clears throat> we can collect different information and create new nodes or new tack on new bits of information based upon that so each object now has a list and I'm just appending to that list um, and the list contains whatever bits of information we've collected in a certain type but I've gotten rid of the structure so we don't have a struct I've given up now on the idea of a struct in to totally I'm not and I spent maybe 20 years trying to find a structure uh, for these nodes and thought about it in so many different ways and now I'm basically giving up on it and saying, we have a list. We have a list of information we've collected. We can add more information to that list. Um, and that's it. I mean, sure, eventually that can be hardened into a struct. But at this point in the process, the list is what we need. And um, you've got multiple passes. So then I was thinking, well, if we have n squared, we could have a whole range of polynomials. Like we could be processing these, processing these things again and again in a way um, we could be processing things again and again in such a way that um,
well, you could do n to the third, right? Which is like cubed. Um, so every node to every other node, and then for each node again, you would have the relationship between them. Well, that's probably too much. But you definitely can get into some complicated data structures. And um, I was imagining them in my head. It's kind of hard to put them all into words. But uh, the idea of tacking, being able to tack on nodes as we go and then create different sets. Create different groupings. And all of this is really binding or creating a structure for human consumption. Let's say user consumption. And it's really kind of reverse engineering what's in the compiler. So given the graph of data, you reverse engineer what's in there and create your own structures eventually so you can reach the point that you can actually interpret the other structures directly. So we're going to bootstrap some kind of interpreter, right? And this is where we're getting into the lambda functions and all this stuff. Eventually we're going to, the goal is to bootstrap a system that will be able to interpret um, <clears throat> the nodes. And really, as we said, one part of the graph controls another part of the graph. So we're going to say this section of the graph gives us instructions on how to interpret the rest of it. So the bootstrap system is going to find that core bit of self-description and I guess either we're going to reproduce it, make our own version of it, or we're actually going to interpret it and use that to create an interpreter that interprets something else. So in the end, we're creating Turing machines or functions, complicated functions from the data that then interpret other bits of data that create more functions. And um, eventually we'll have a system that is Turing totally generic and we won't understand it again. Just like we talked about before with the Google not understanding what the meaning is, well, we're going to get to such a complexity that we won't understand <clears throat> what we have either. So if it's on this side of the fence, in our world of bindings and understanding, 
then we'll call it ours. And if it's on that side of the fence, we're going to call it theirs. And the question then becomes how not to get sucked into or be controlled by their system. Right? How not to lose control of your mind or either understand their system and subsume it into yours and um, what's the amount of complexity that you need to model theirs the other <clears throat> And, uh, yeah, so that's kind of where I'm at right now. I spent some days uh, learning about Lambda Calculus, um, Piano, Turing, Girdle, Church, Haskell, more people. What was it? Whitehall or Whitehead? And uh, these are really uh, um, a lot of people from Princeton, actually. <clears throat> the fathers of the theoretical systems. And they attacked the mathematics and the logic of code. And we need to um, we need to understand them better. And this gets into the whole computer science. And I've got some pretty heavy books on this as well. <clears throat> so I think that's where we're kind of, when we get into theirs versus ours, what system holds another system. And Turing kind of said, well, all I need is a loop. And um, Church said, all I need is a function, is a lambda. And Turing said, well, I just need some way to store the data. And Church says, I need a variable binding, or even just a function. Like, he has everything in functions. Everything is in a function. Even the numbers are functions. <clears throat> the bindings of uh, 
successor and predecessor functions. Like one. Oh, I'm not going to even attempt to. Uh... But Turing showed that the, the lambda calculus and the Turing Michigans are equivalent. And I can't say that I understand all of it, but I can say that we have some kind of system that can represent something other system and compute on it. So we're able to compute over somewhat over the other's data. But we know from our security lecture that this other message can be an attack. It can be an attack. It can be an exploit. So you never know if the other is good or evil, and according to Turing and the incompleteness, you'll never know if it's, you can't even decide if it's going to be good or evil. Right? Um, for an infinite tape, given an infinite number of space. Yeah. So we can encode anything into a number any program can be represented as a number and this is kind of where we're getting at and it's like well what representation is actually better Well, let's say the representation that we understand. The one we understand. So, and then we get into non-functional um, issues, non-functional attributes, functional attributes, non-functional attributes. So the functional attributes are the ones that talk about what was requested from the other, what we represented, and the non-functionals are how it's executed, the attributes over time.
so um yeah and i'm also trying to apply the uh, wolfram stuff where <clears throat> he has a hypergraph and he has algorithms that just um that tweak things so we can do graph rewrites we can either add a new bit of information or we can rewrite an existing node. And I think that's going to be the next one is we're going to rewrite, resolve um, a pointer, extract out some information from the reference node and then replace the pointer or append it with more information. And uh, then I was thinking, well, do we update the existing graph or do we just return a new hash that we can do a lookup on and I'm kind of torn on that so but it doesn't really matter Because these are all just details. All right. Well, that's my little spiel. I got more to say. Uh, I got more to think about. But I'm gonna leave it at that. 21 minutes. Oh my God. And now we're going to get on to something completely different. Okay. This is the sound of, I think it's the uh, Asapunk, or one of the creeks or streams going into the Delaware and crossing the Shaky Bridge, which is a concept bridge from Rubling. And um, it bounces all over the place. It's, it's a tiny suspension bridge. And it's quite neat. And it just reminds you of the amazing engineering capabilities of people. <clears throat> and um, so Winston, Patrick Winston said that in, in MIT, we build models. As an engineer, we build models of reality. And the suspension bridge, or any other engineering feat, is built on models of reality. Where the other is the, um, the world. Now, in mathematics, or abstract mathematics, we are actually building models of models. So that's kind of where, when we get into functions <clears throat> and defining functions and programming, we're really um, using a simple construct to try and understand Oh, what's going on?
morning, guys. So, we're kind of thinking here, the insight that I had is that, you know, in Princeton, these mathematicians, you know, they designed and built general purpose computers, Turing, and then in order to program it, you'd have to be a mathematician. Now things got dumbed down quite a bit. And today I like to say our programmers are random code generators. Um, <clears throat> Boy, this is a lot of cars. So, I'm down by the uh, Trenton Waterworks. Off of Route 31, and it's quite noisy. But I thought I would go a different way today. So, what I'm, uh, what I'm thinking about here is that the mathematicians used math to try and understand other people's um, ideas and make them their own because these are the tools that they had they had functions they had math algebra and so real in real reality what we're talking about here is a language mathematical language as describing something else it's a carrier system it carries information about something outside. Something we really don't understand. Some variable, some object, some attribute, some something. And um, when we make programs, we also do something similar. But I'm just getting to the point myself of understanding this deeper, getting a deeper understanding. <sighs> because we don't, we don't know much and in math in general we don't have an understanding we can theorize something we can create a, try and create a proof for it and I guess the proofs are uh, really I guess the proofs are really the only thing 
you can call understanding, but I find proofs very hard to read and very hard to understand. We could try automatic proofs, which are even harder to understand. Automatic theory proving. So the whole idea of understanding and knowledge is quite the um, it's quite the thing. It's quite the hard problem, and I think I underestimated it in many ways. Because the more abstract you get, the further away you get from from understanding until you actually lose it. But it's kind of... Um, It's kind of uh, interesting, the theory that in this mess of data that there is a key, that there's passwords left in the system basically, and there's a key to understand them. that's kind of what we get with open source is the passwords aren't there but there's so much of the data in there now if, if we apprehend if we try and understand and model some open source software that model is not open source. Right. Now we can copy it and execute it, but as soon as we treat it as the other, it has to be subsumed, integrated into our model. As soon as we start modeling it, that model becomes ours. I guess I'm repeating myself now. I'm gonna think about this some more. Okay, well, we're not gonna stop. And I suggest you just turn this thing off now if you're still listening because we're gonna go deep. So, if we have the other system and we've loaded it in and now we're starting a process of subsuming it, consuming it. So we can start by analyzing different structures. We can um, end up generating code and modules in our current system that model that other system based upon its code 
or data we've collected from its runtime, or data we've collected from the documentation, etc., etc., etc. So this introspector system will be able to emit new code that is derived from existing code using your rules and um, that code that's generated from someone else's code it's of a questionable copyright but we're going to say that it's derived from the existing code with your rules and is of questionable copyright so it's not exactly yours Okay, so we're going to have to still put that into a quarantine, just from a security perspective, it still could contain something dangerous, right? So until we have actually cleared the entire thing, we're going to consider it dangerous, right? Until it's been completely rewritten, let's say. So we're in the process of rewriting someone else's code, using that code and other data. And um, <clears throat> we can do this in memory. That's what a compiler does in memory. And it can be rewritten for execution but what if we rewrite it for understanding and display for humans not computers what if we analyze it for editing or for code generation so this is kind of where we get into where the introspector is separate from a compiler, refactoring browser is more like it. And um, I, I've got some notes, pages and pages of notes on this topic. I could talk about hours and hours and hours. But let's just say it's going to deliver a page of important data to the user. It's going to deliver a page of important data to the user that has some meaning to them. Okay. Let's see, they've got a... Uh, ATM? Okay. So... We're going to think about this some more, and we're going to get some shopping done. Boy, this is going so down the rabbit hole. Um, we're totally losing control of this episode, my friends.
we really are. Because if we look at mathematics theories as a study of generalities, of universalities, for all things there exists something. That's one side of the coin. And, you know, the mathematicians, they want to discover some new something that's generally useful, that's universally true. God speaks in math, said Vlad. So that's one side. But when we're dealing with computer programs and applications, even the puny little functions that I'm making, they're so tiny and um, almost insignificant. A lot of the stuff I've been doing hasn't been that general at all. The only real interesting function that I have is the one that will pull out attribute by attribute from this list and then tack it on to the end. And it... tack it on to the end of the list. That's like the most interesting thing. It's like for all these objects, run these operations to extract information from them, create some information node for each one of them, or a list of nodes, and then append all of them to the list of information we have about each thing. That's like whoop-de-doo. Look at that. It looks like they got a little windshield wiper for the uh, camera. I don't know if it's... So... That's what we got so far. Oh, and then we've got the one that says, given this set of nodes, resolve the pointers in them. So basically allow all the nodes to be compared to all the other nodes. And, um, well, when we get into optimizations, we're going to be comparing the nodes to all the other nodes and maybe smaller sets. Maybe we can reduce the subset. We can break this thing up into subgraphs. And then for these subgraphs, we're going to compare sets uh, or all the elements in the sets multiple times. So we could say that every time we do a pass over the compiler, we add one. So it's like two times n squared, right? Or three times n squared, four times n squared. So we're we are um, going up with a constant. So our, our, our passes are going to be n times 1. So 
n times 2, n times 3. So every time we do a single pass over all the nodes, that's um, in the first order, linear, and then we have the uh, n squared, which is we have a hash of all the nodes and we we pass over all the nodes in relation to all the other nodes. So that's uh, xc times uh, c2 times n squared. And I'm not sure if we need n cubed, but we're going to leave that as an option. But we're going to have some kind of recursive functions that build on top of each other, so we're going to say, like, we're going to build up some kind of recursion. So based on c5 like the fifth iteration will build on the fourth iteration. The fourth iteration will build on the third iteration. So we might make slices, more and more slices of data where we um, do more and more operations on these graphs um, and relate things to each other or create subsets or partial functions. So we're going to reduce the size of n. It'll be n minus something or half of n, right? If we've got 20 different node types, we can say n divided by 20, let's say. Now, if they're not evenly distributed, then we have a distribution function. And we could say we have some distribution function that um, says what's the probability of a different type occurring. So it's not divided by, I guess it would be multiplied by a matrix. And then we could have different partitions. Now, really, the question of introspection comes in in terms of memory. Because I was just listening to and reading about Clean, Kleena, uh, the guy who invented regular expressions, the Clean Star. And basically, he's talking about finite state automata and zero memory machines. So maybe some of these operations don't need any memory at all. And we don't need to include the history. So we have the expansion where we're adding in more and more attributes. But then we have reductions where we're cutting them out. And the evaluation means that we're going to take some expression that's complicated. We're going to reduce it down to one variable binding. we're going to have lots of different evaluations for lots of different things. And this is where we get into the other 
because we have some part of the graph which defines what's going to be evaluated. We have some part of the graph that defines how it's going to be evaluated. We have one part of the graph that says what the structure of all of this is going to be, possible structure. And we're going to add into this graph some kind of statistics or probabilities that describe it. cars or uh, Lamborghinis or something. Sports cars. <clears throat> so, uh, now why do we need to represent the probabilities of these graphs when we can actually just rep have the graphs themselves that contain the probabilities? So we can also just sample them as needed and define a function. See, and this is where we get into functional style where we don't actually have to calculate something unless we need it. We can have a lazy definition. We can have a lazy definition whose only evaluated when it's needed. It can be an infinite definition. infinite definition and again in Haskell it'll be lazily loaded and only evaluated when needed so that's kind of neat so we can get closer to mathematics See, that was my big, big disappointment with um, RDF and the semantic web, because in the end, you might define all these semantics, all these graphs, but then what are the algorithms that are going to run on them? What's actually going to give meaning to it? Yeah, and that's, uh, and I was also thinking about the narrative versus the model. Okay, but you can see I'm really lost in my labyrinth today. And there's really no escape in this one. The labyrinth of my mind that entraps my soul. The illusions of form that bind me to this earth. It's pretty poetic, huh?
can we reflect upon that and pull ourselves out of it? Can we extract ourselves from this form? Like, why are we here? Because we somehow got lost. Where are we going? We don't know. How do we get out of here? We don't know. Eventually, I guess you're going to have to just give up, huh? Do the roads lead to nothingness? To extinguishing the thought? Or do they go somewhere? Yeah, and that's what I was saying. If you have the structure, the keys, the passwords embedded in the system, self-similar systems, and so forth, Um, that's one way of looking at things. And then we can look at full knowledge and um, full, a fully closed system, like we talked about. You know, I'm sitting on my computer editing. Um, got all the source code, like a closed system with all this knowledge. That's the let's just say that's the ideal learning point where you have all the data and then. You've got slices and slices less than that, where you pull out or drop some of this knowledge. You abstract or leave away some things. And you reduce and reduce and reduce down to the essential, let's say for running the computer. The essential for human understanding is different. Good morning. Good morning. We need something different. We're not computers. No. And sure, we can reverse engineer. We talked about this. We can reverse some encoding of some binary machine. Or we could train some neural network, I guess, to guess at it and apply other tools to check that. Or we just know it ahead of time. But even all that, that closed system, can still be used to apprehend another system. It could be used to apprehend a similar system. Let's say I have this version of the system and I want to apprehend the newer version of itself, like something that's not even handled yet, the future version. So the future version of itself is the other in that case because the future is the other. Is it a good future or a bad future? Do we know?
if there's no time. But how do you know if taking this decision or that decision is going to be the right one? So that gets into some interesting questions. And boy, we are so lost. So we have the future version of ourselves that we're trying to understand. That, that's an interesting point. We have similar versions of the same software that we're trying to understand. Alternative implementations that do basically the same thing. We have standards that we are trying to adhere to, that other systems are trying to adhere to, like the Unix standard or the C language standard. So let's say we're trying to apprehend a cut-down version of another system and we're trying to create a model that reverse engineers the binary implementation from another person and see how it maps onto what we've done. Let's say we have some proprietary compiler and we want to reverse engineer it compared to our compiler and given our source code and see where it deviates. So then we're going to get into the problem of the other again, of the unknown. So we're just going to say that the unknown is variable x. Okay? So you have a variable, it's a complicated variable, that represents the other program, the input. And this could also be a malicious input. Could be a malicious input. Could be a benign input. We want to decide what it is. And then we want to see how similar it is to what we've done, how it reacts differently to the same inputs. So we can apply all types of tests and do all types of measurements. And create some kind of model of it and relate that to the model that we have of our system. And we can get into a lot of the data that I've collected. But that still doesn't assign meaning to it yet. But if we have a known system 
or closed system, which is the closed bootstrap system. That's a variable that we know a lot about. We don't know everything about it. We don't know all the extents of it, but we know a certain core set of it. There's parts of it that are open to interpretation, that are not all bound down. But we know some probabilities of things. And we have a lot of data on it. Okay. So the question will then become, do we know enough about Do we know enough, enough about it to uh, to understand it? And what does it mean to understand it? See, this is where we get into the whole crux, the cross of everything. What does it actually mean? Okay, so we can say, look at some phenomena, and then find what produced it. Okay. So let's say that's part of understanding. We have some uh, something on the screen, and we want to know where it came from, like an audit record. We want to be able to reverse that. Time travel. Let's see all the causations. The graph of causation. Now, do we have to store that? Or can we do a lazy load of it? Does it have to be calculated? Or is it actually predictable? Is it predictable? Now, this is where we're going to get into modeling the user. All right. Modeling the user's behavior. And I guess we're going to provide some kind of language that describes how a user could use the system and how a user does use the system. But let's just say that they're going to edit the source code of the system and that every single byte is going to be typed in. Let's just say that. And then every time we do a change, those changes are going to be, files are going to be opened up. We're going to search for the part to change. We're going to make that change. And we're going to close it. So we have two different versions. We have old version and new version. We have the change. And now we want to know how would we attempt that change using the editor. Okay, that's the user's interaction at that time. We want to model that. 
and we want to say, how can we make it easier to make that change? How can I reduce the time to find it, to describe it? How can I reduce the number of steps, the cost function of making that change? And how can we understand that change? And what are its attributes, functional and non-functional? How does it actually change the system? Is it a cosmetic, non-functional change, or is it a functional change? Does it introduce new behaviors? And how are those behaviors exercised? Are they exercised? How could they be exercised? Now that really gets into an open versus closed system. How could you exercise this function? How could we iterate over all of its inputs? What are the probabilities of its inputs? What do we know about them? And let's say it's some hardware driver for some machine we don't even understand. And they're just loading in some blob, some encrypted blob into it. Or it's some encrypted blob that you need to provide through a third-party driver. Yeah, so that's interesting. And I'm wondering... Good morning. wondering um, how we're going to model that. So we have things that are inside of the uh, core and things that are used inside the core and things that can be executed in the core that we can collect usage information. And let's just say that the editor is going to just open up every single file, go to those lines and make those changes. I mean, simple. So like apply a diff. apply a patch or just apply the entire file like that's not a very sophisticated understanding so how can we go from just a set of bytes that are being pasted to actual deep understanding and how deep can that understanding go given our closed system. And I think that's kind of what we're getting at here, is that you know, given a, um, a core Linux system 
have a lot of uh, information that we could use. It was funny, some guy was looking at me. Real funny. Didn't even say hi. But that's rare. And that's good. Um, well, I don't want to make people afraid. Because then they might start shooting at me. So, Yeah, so we have a carrier system that defines a core system. That builds a bigger system that can represent unknowns. in a recursive manner where things that have been previously covered or built upon and it successively layer by layer allows you to collect the information and let's say someone does have that hardware and then they could share it so they could execute some code on it they could bootstrap the entire system and then we could see the profile of that system being bootstrapped on that new hardware and collect some core information about it just kind of like a benchmark and i guess we have more and more benchmarks we could use and optimize them. It's like one of the benchmarks is like compile the Linux kernel. And we're talking about a bit bigger operation here than just compiling the kernel. So Finding a variable, showing how it's used, giving examples, using it, that will give meaning to it. And then documenting it somehow, 
writing a narrative. Fitting it into the story. And I guess that's what we're doing here, is we're writing a story. We're telling a story. We are collecting information about the story. I definitely see things in my head that I can't always describe in this narration. And the narrative might not be that good or compelling. Might not be that concise or short. So we have different variables on that narrative. And there's code that will um, generate comments for code. But what I'm saying here is that we actually have enough data to actually define the human interaction fully. Like search for all the occurrences of this and replace them with that, right? Like how would we model that? We could say, we see something's been added, we see something's been deleted. We see the tree structures in the old and new version that are different. How can we model a transformation of those tree structures? So can we model that change as a function that modifies one tree and transforms it into another tree? And what's the smallest, most concise, most powerful description of that change we can make? And can we start with small changes and work our way up to bigger changes? And, um, yeah, can we model this thing to be functional so that we don't have to execute the whole thing and we don't have to store all the data, but we can lazy evaluate everything? That's the real question. So what it would be like find this tree that maps this transformation or apply this transformation like describe this change compare these two trees compare these two graphs and give meaning to them and the meaning 
should be there should be enough data in the graph itself that you can describe all the parts and label all the parts and give meaning to them. thinking about Knuth. There's literate programming. Okay, so I think we've reached a point where we can stop now and um, take a break.